Father, our God in heaven, when Jesus teaches us to start our prayers with Father, hallowed be your name, I think that word hallowed incorporates and includes a plethora of words, adjectives, expressions, and ideas that encapsulate the magnitude of your glory, that reveal the significance of your holiness. Because we think of you with all of the words that the Bible tells us you are, unchanging, holy, righteous, good, full of glory, just and right, kind, patient, forgiving, long-suffering, love. You're also full of vengeance and wrath against sin. You hate sin. You hate evil. Your word also tells us that you're sovereign, that you're supreme, that you are grand, that you are beyond our comprehension, that our ability to fathom your magnitude is impossible, that you are indescribable and inexpressible. And when we contemplate the magnitude of your person, the magnitude of your grandeur, we should be in awe. You are a transcendent God, transcending beyond all of, all, all of our thoughts. If we were to put together and string together all the words, all the perfect and right words to rightly describe you, that sentence would be infinitely long and it would fall infinitely short of truly describing you. So there is not a moment in our life where we express you and it is not worth it. It's always worth it because you are just beyond us. And then to contemplate that you, Father, being transcendently beyond our comprehension would then make yourself tangible and attainable and meetable and knowable in the person, Jesus Christ. That is grace. That is goodness expressed for us and to us in your love. So let us try to understand the fullness of who you are as we pursue and know Jesus Christ this morning. It is for his exaltation and Father, it is for your glory that we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Throughout history, God has always been in covenant with his people. We see it right off the bat at creation. He creates, and in his creation, he sets a covenant with his creation. And then he makes a covenant with Adam. It's called the Adamic covenant. And then he makes a covenant with Noah. That's called the Noahic covenant. And then he makes a covenant with Abraham. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. Covenant. And then he makes a covenant with Moses called the Mosaic Covenant. And then he makes a covenant with David called the Davidic Covenant. And there are other covenants in the Bible, not just those. 
And all of these covenants that existed in the Old Testament had a purpose, had an intention. And the intention of those covenants was to point to the future, to point to a better covenant that God would make with his people in Christ. And that, that covenant that he would make and has now made in Christ is called the new covenant. And according to Hebrews 8, 6, it is a better covenant because it is enacted on better promises. So we're talking about covenants, but covenants aren't really the point. Although covenants are kind of like the umbrella over the point that Paul is making in this text. Because within covenants are elements. Every covenant that God makes with his people has the same elements. All of God's covenants have elements like stipulations. Every covenant has stipulations. Every covenant has promises, blessings, curses. Every covenant has a witness. Every covenant has an oath that's taken. Every covenant has a sacrifice and a ceremony to start the covenant. It also has they also all have a judgment in them, and they also have an expulsion of the covenant or, or parameters for, that need to be met in order for the covenant to end. And every single covenant that God makes also has a sign, a sign of the covenant. And that sign is an expression that the people in the covenant do or participate in that reveals their adherence to or commitment to that covenant. And that sign always reveals, it's always a physical sign that reveals a deeper spiritual reality. And so that physical sign in the covenant exposes a better spiritual reality of that physical sign. And I'll explain what I mean by that. And so in God's covenant with Noah, the sign of the covenant was what? A rainbow. In God's covenant with Moses, the sign of the covenant was the Sabbath. And in God's covenant with Abraham, the sign of the covenant was circumcision. And that sign of his covenant with Abraham of being circumcised lasted all the way up until the new covenant in Christ. And we see this covenant start between God and Abraham in Genesis 17, verses 10 through 12. And God says to Abraham, this is my covenant, which you shall keep. Between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. So, that's the Old Covenant. That's what the Jews were living, when, uh, living in for approximately 2,000 years until Christ shows up and dies and rises from the grave and we get a new covenant in Christ and the elements of the Old Covenant are uh, transitioned to a new covenant with better signs and better elements and better promises and better because that new covenant is, stands on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And everything in the Old Covenant, everything in the Old Testament is always pointing us to, to Christ. All those old covenants are pointing us to Christ. Every element of those covenants is pointing us to Christ. Because when we get Christ, 
We no longer have to live within those old elements because Christ fulfills the requirement of those old covenants and then makes a new one. So we're not, we're not strapped to those old covenant elements anymore. So if circumcision was a sign of the old covenant and believers are not in the old covenant, but now we're in the new covenant in Christ, then what does circumcision have to do with the Colossians? In Colossians 2, 11 through 12, Paul writes, In him also you were circumcised. Now, I'm just going to stop there. Let's consider what's going on here. In Christ you were circumcised. Now, he's, he's not talking about physical circumcision because ultimately what the point he's trying to get to is that I'm not talking about physical circumcision I'm talking about a spiritual circumcision, which he later calls the circumcision of Christ. So he clarifies that as we work through this text. In Christ, also, you were circumcised, not physically, but with a circumcision made without hands. So right there, that removal of the hands shows us that this is not a physical circumcision we're talking about. But he's using circumcision to draw their attention to the meaning of what the physical circumcision was really intended to do. It was a physical reality meant to express a spiritual reality. And we'll talk about what that is. And he, he tells us right here what that is. That this circumcision without hands is the putting off of the body of flesh. Or what Paul describes He's clarifying that description by saying, by the circumcision of Christ. The circumcision of Christ is the putting off of the body of flesh, which is a circumcision that is not physical, but spiritual. And then he describes what that putting off of the body of flesh in Christ, or the circumcision of Christ, really is. It is this, having been buried with him in baptism. He's not talking about your water baptism. He's talking about being baptized into Christ and he's leading into what baptism is, what that physical baptism is. We're going to talk about that. So having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. And this is a God who raised him from the dead. So Jewish believers... And Gentile believers in Colossae, they knew the significance of circumcision. And they understood that it was the sign of the people's commitment to their covenant with God. And they understood that that physical sign was meant to express a spiritual reality, which is the removal of flesh. So it's a physical removal of flesh. And that is meant to point or reveal that the whole point of being God's people is that there's a spiritual removal of flesh. And they're learning that now from Paul, that there's no need, no longer a need for this physical circumcision because that was the sign of the old covenant. There's a new sign in the new covenant. And the new sign of the new covenant is baptism. Now in verse, verses 11 and 12, Paul talks about baptism and the way he uses the word baptism here, he's referring to his spiritual baptism, not the physical baptism. But when we accumulate all the other Bible verses in the that talk about baptism, and we see that there is a physical baptism we're supposed to perform, and that is a physical sign of the spiritual reality, that we have been spiritually baptized into Christ. So circumcision no longer means anything. It's, it, it's essentially worthless 
in a spiritual sense. It's worthless in regard to obedience to God. It's worthless in regard to our following God's rules or being committed to his covenants because that's the old covenant and that's a sign for the old covenant. We're in a new covenant in Christ and the new sign is being baptized. And Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians seven nineteen. He says, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Meaning like, doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not circumcised, it's irrelevant. It, it doesn't mean anything anymore. So what does mean something, Paul? And he tells us, but keeping the commandments of God. And we'll see in Romans 2 in a second what that, what that means. What does, so when we say keeping the commandments of God, how would you summarize keeping the commandments of God in one word? I think the best way to summarize that idea is with the word obedience. Keeping God's commandments is obedience. And so what Paul's saying is circumcised, not circumcised, doesn't matter. You are or you aren't, it's irrelevant. The point is obey. That's the point of 1 Corinthians 7, 19. And that ultimately is the end game of Colossians 2, 11 through 12. But that's not really the point that Paul's making in that text. In that text, Paul is pointing to the heart of what causes that obedience. So the real sign that we express that shows that we are in covenant with God is no longer a physical circumcision, but instead the way we express our adherence to God's covenant in Christ is ultimately obedience to his commandments. And so, and this is important that we understand that 1 Corinthians 7.19 tells them when it comes to circumcision, it doesn't matter. The point is that you obey God. That's really important because in order to obey God, something else has to happen first. You have to be saved. You can't obey God if you're not saved. Hebrews 11.6 without, or 11.1, uh oh. 6? Thank you. I just keep Christian around to give me Bible references all the time. Uh, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can't, you can't please God with an obedient act unless you have Christ. That's all there is to it. An unbeliever who gives $1,000 to charity out of the just pure love for people, that might be what we would call a good thing, but God looks at that act and says that act is still done in the flesh. It's still done with a sinful nature in which that person is enslaved to. They can't please me because when I look at them, I don't see what pleases me. And the only thing that pleases me is Jesus. Which is why you please God because you are covered in the righteousness of Christ. So when God looks at you, he sees Jesus, which means even when you sin, which I would preach from the pulpit, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. But when you do, God still looks at you and goes, I see my son. I see that sin you just did. I'm not dumb. I can see the sin. I know it's bad. It grieves my spirit. Yes, I see that sin, but it's already been paid for by the blood of my son. You are covered in that blood. And what I see on you is not guilt. I see a white gown of righteousness that my son has purchased in his death for you. So I see my son Jesus even in your sin. Amen. For the unbeliever, 
There's no Christ. So even a, something that we would call good doesn't satisfy the Father. And so that's important because in order to obey God, you have to have Christ. So, so if we talk about obedience being what matters most, something has to happen in order for that obedience to take place. And that is salvation or your justification. And once you're justified, here's what happens. God removes in your justification, God removes your, your sin, forgives your sin, and then transfers the righteousness of Christ onto you. And, and the way in which that happens is by God putting His Spirit in you. So, when you're justified, the Spirit has done that work in you. He's doing that work in you. And we begin our Christian life with a regenerated heart from the Holy Spirit. And that's the beginning of your salvation. That's the moment you're justified. The moment you're justified is when the Spirit enters you. And when the Spirit enters you, there's an immediate regeneration of your heart and an immediate presentation of faith into your soul and into your heart and all of that is an act of God's grace which is motivated by his love for you and it is with that faith that is a gift Ephesians 2 8 that faith is a gift that he gives to you it is in that faith that we respond to hearing the gospel and we say yes to Jesus Well, there's something else that happens when the Spirit regenerates our hearts. He's got to remove something. And we would say that's sin, right? The sin nature. Well, what do we call? What does the Bible call that sin nature? It calls it flesh. There's sometimes in Scripture where the word flesh is meant to mean something good. Like you look at Ezekiel 36, 26, and, and we see that the word flesh, God says, I'm going to give them a heart, I'm going to remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. That In that instance, that word flesh is meant to be a good thing, right? Like a, a soft, amiable heart by which the Spirit can enter that soft heart. Heart of stone is met with abrupt force and the Spirit does not enter that. So instead, God gives or causes a softened heart by which the Spirit enters. That's, so there are times when the word flesh is kind of a softening, a good thing. But typically and mostly throughout Scripture, the idea of the flesh is always or usually referring to our sinful nature. And what happens in our justification is as God forgives us of our sin and gives us His righteousness, what He removes from us is our flesh, our sinful, sinful nature. So he removes the consequences of that sinful nature. He conquers that sinful nature. He removes our slavery from that sinful nature. But right now, today, in this human, in this human life that we live in and exist in, that sinful nature still resides on us and in us and around us and through us, Right? So we're still operating with it, but we're no longer enslaved to it, and that is the difference. So when I talk about that unbeliever who does a good thing, gives $1,000 to charity out of the goodness of his heart, or, or uh, uh, shovels his neighbor's driveway, or whatever act he does, he's still doing it in slavery to sin. So it's not satisfying to God. It doesn't please the Lord. Whereas we... 
with no longer being enslaved to our sinful flesh, but now being in Romans 6, slaves to Christ, Romans 6.18 specifically, that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to the righteousness of Christ. Now everything we do can become holy and righteous. We, here's what that really means. You don't have to sin anymore. You don't have to. You're not enslaved to it. You're not forced into it. You can choose righteousness. You can do right. You can do the good thing. At the end of this sermon, you know what you're going to get out of this? And I know this sounds like a corny, like, motivational thing. But at the end of the day, I hope what you hear is, you can do it. <laughs> and I mean that. And I'm going to tell you why you can do it and how you can do it. And it's not going to be about you. I can promise you that. But I'm going to tell you, you can do it. Because you're not enslaved to sin anymore. So, this idea of the removal of flesh that comes in our justification, this is massively important to Paul's point because he's talking about circumcision. And what is circumcision? It is a physical removal of flesh. Do you get the connection? But that was for the old covenant. Paul's getting to the heart of the, the issue here, which is just that removal of flesh. Circumcision was the physical removal of flesh, and it was meant to be an outward sign of what God has done in their hearts, which was to cause obedience, and that obedience is, is that removal of the flesh. So just as circumcision is a removal of the physical flesh, in God's covenant, he removes the sinful spiritual flesh. Now, he didn't really complete that process in the Old Testament and in the Old Covenant with the Jews because that physical circumcision was a sign to the Jews of, hey, remove the flesh, the physical flesh, because it's a picture of what I want you to do in my covenant, which is obey. Obey. Your commitment to this covenant is that you do what I command. That's, that's, the, that's their role. I'm going to make a covenant with you. This is, this is, I'm going to do this, this, and that. And, and this is your role in the covenant. Follow my rules. Obey my commandments. Do what I say. Well, God, what are the... And he makes 631 laws or whatever it is. And, and he says, follow all these laws. Now, do they follow all those laws? No, because they can't. Because they're incapable of doing it. Why are they incapable of doing it? Because they don't have the Holy Spirit. Because they're not perfect. Because they're sinful people. And the whole purpose of the law, that reason God gave them the law, was to show them you're incapable on your own and in this human flesh to live perfectly according to my rules. You can't do it. That's the whole point of the law. And the whole reason that the circumcision exists as a physical removal of flesh is to reveal that you should remove the sinful flesh in you by obeying my commandments. And the, the, the Israelites like, okay, got it, God. We'll remove the physical flesh through circumcision and then we'll live out spiritually the removal of flesh by obeying all your commandments. All right, Israelites, let's go. And like 30 seconds later, they're all sinning. And they couldn't do it. And so you look at this and go, God, what's the point of this? Why put them through the physical pain of circumcision as a sign of what's happening to them spiritually that they should remove their sinful flesh and live according to your commandments when you know they can't do it? And God's like, the whole point of them being incapable of doing it with the removal of the physical flesh as a sign of the spiritual removal of flesh is to get them to the point where they go, I can't do this on my own. I need help. And God goes, 
That is exactly where I want you. So that you are ready when I bring a new covenant in my son, Jesus Christ. The whole point of those circumcision and the, in the, in the physical sign of the removal of flesh and their inability to spiritually live out the removal of flesh and obey the commandments of God, the whole purpose of their failure to do that is to point them to a better promise and a better covenant and a coming Messiah who is Jesus Christ. That you can't do this without my grace. You can't do this without my son. So the physical circumcision was simply an outward sign of an inward reality for God's people to live holy, which he knew they can't do. And all that was intended to bring them to their knees and desire that coming Messiah. And the Old Testament saints' faith, their faith in God's covenant is how they got saved. So how are we saved? By faith in, our, in the covenant of Christ. We get saved in a new covenant by putting our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and believing in his death and resurrection, right? Romans 10, 9. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That's, that's you committing to the new covenant in Christ. In the old covenant, it was the same thing. You've got to commit to God's promises and God's commandments of that covenant. And that covenant always included a promise of a coming Messiah. And that promise of a coming Messiah throughout the Old Testament gets modified and changed a little bit here and there depending on how God reveals new information throughout history. And as God reveals more and more of the mystery of the gospel throughout the Old Testament, God's people are held accountable to believing that degree of revelation as it comes out through his covenants. And so, the Old Testament saints were saved by their faith in God's promise of the Messiah. Meaning, Old Testament saints were saved by Jesus Christ. And he hadn't even been born yet. Just like we're saved by Jesus Christ, and he was born, died, and resurrected, and ascended to heaven 2,000 years ago. Abraham was saved, Genesis 15, by faith. God told Abraham, I am going to give you a seed. That's all he told him. And that seed is going to multiply and be uncountable. He didn't say his name's going to be Jesus, he's going to be born, and this time, and this is what's going to happen, there's going to be a star in the sky, and, and then he's, you know, he's going to, leave, he's going to set, die on the cross. And, like, he, didn't, he didn't share any of that information with Abraham. He goes, I'm going to produce in you a seed. This is my promise to you, and in that seed, the nations of the world will be saved. It's the, it's the promise of Messiah. It's not the first promise. The first promise of the Messiah is in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin and God says, don't worry, I've got a solution. It's the Messiah. And he, Satan is going to crush his heel, but Jesus, or the Messiah, is going to crush his head. So that's the first promise. And then we see this promise modified a little bit with Abraham. And all Abraham, Abraham has to do, or I think it's Abram at the time, is 
is just believe this promise of this coming Messiah. He doesn't know the Messiah's name. He doesn't know how long he'll live. He doesn't know when this is going to happen. He doesn't know that he's going to be this, uh, you know, doesn't understand all the elements like this perfect God-man, fully God, fully man. And he's going to live this life for three years. He's going to do ministry. He's going to suffer at the hands of the Jews. He's going to be sacrificed on the cross and rise from the grave. He doesn't know any of that stuff. God just gives him a promise, and the degree of promise that God reveals to him, Abraham is held accountable to it, and Abraham says, I believe that promise, God. And in uh, Genesis 15, God says, and his faith in that promise was counted to Abraham as righteousness. He got saved by believing in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, with very limited information. And as God reveals more and more information throughout time, people are held accountable to more and more belief about the gospel. And that is why the new covenant is better because we know everything. You look at Ephesians chapter three and Paul's like, the mystery is finally revealed. Woo! We know everything. His name's Jesus. He was born this day in this place at this time in this way with these people and they're involved in this way and he lived this long and, and he did this ministry and he did this, this and that and healed people and cast out demons and, and preached the gospel and he is fully God and fully man and he loves you and he died on the cross for your sins. If you would just believe in him, you'd be saved and he rose from the grave and he ascended to heaven and he lived 40 days on earth with people after his resurrection and he's coming back for you and his kingdom is full of glory and he's seated at the right hand of the Father on high and he is is ultimately glorious and great and wonderful and holy and good and he loves you and he cares about you and by his grace he saved you and I could go on and on and on describing all these awesome things about Jesus and that all that mystery is now finally revealed Amen. and we have to believe it to be saved and when we do he removes our flesh and we still have this sinful flesh but he removes our slavery to that flesh now, speaking of circumcision and what that means to the Colossians, I think Paul expresses it really well in Romans 2, 26 through 29. He says, and I'd really love to spend a lot of time on this text because it's, it's really, really hearty and meaty and good, but I'm going to try to just whiz through it. Paul says, so if a man who is uncircumcised, okay, so hey, Jews, there's this guy who's uncircumcised. They'd be like, oh, what a terrible person. He hasn't been circumcised. Well, he's no Jew. Paul says, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, well, he's not circumcised, but he's obeying the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Meaning, Paul's point there is keeping the law is the point. Circumcision is not the point. Circumcision is a physical sign. The reality is that you wouldn't live in the flesh, and if you're not living in the flesh, you're obeying God. He says, Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. So, oh, you follow the rules. You got circumcised, but you don't obey God? Then what's the point of your circumcision? The guy who's not circumcised but obeys the law puts you to shame. And then he goes on, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Meaning circumcision, 1 Corinthians 7, 19, circumcision means nothing. Outward circumcision, outward Jewishness, which in this case is circumcision, doesn't mean anything. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. 
And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. So the idea of being a Jew there is really this idea of being saved, being God's people. Salvation, being one with God, being in God's family is about the heart. It's the circumcision of the heart, not a matter of the letter of the law and following the law and being physically circumcised. Paul's getting to this point that this physical circumcision and obeying all these rules and sticking to the old covenant is irrelevant because we no longer live in the old covenant. Later in Romans, Paul says we don't live by the spirit of the law, but by the spirit of God. Our new law is the Holy Spirit. So Paul's point here is that being circumcised is not the point. That the point is that we obey God and you can only obey God when you are inwardly saved. So the physical outward expression of being circumcised or baptized doesn't save you. They are signs that there has already been an inward change which, we, which will be revealed in our outward behavior of holiness and righteousness. So ultimately... Paul's point is that God's people must be holy. And, and, and holiness is only expressed in obedience to God's commands. In the new covenant, baptism is that sign of obedience and holiness and the putting away of flesh. When a Jew would get circumcised at eight days old, they, wouldn't, they weren't like suddenly perfectly obedient. They're eight days old. They probably, after being circumcised, instantly started sinning with their sinful flesh, selfishly crying out for their mom and dad, right? I mean, it's just who we are. They weren't circumcised and like, boom, they're perfect, they're holy, made right. Just like baptism. When someone gets baptized in their faith in Christ, their physical baptism doesn't suddenly make them perfectly obedient and holy because the flesh cannot make us holy and obedient. Removing the foreskin is flesh. That doesn't make you holy and obedient. Getting baptized physically in the flesh, getting dunked in water, doesn't make you holy and obedient. They are signs of a greater reality. And that greater reality is 2 Corinthians 5.17. You are a new creation. The old has passed away. That's the flesh. Behold, the new has come. That's Christ. So baptism now serves as the physical sign of a spiritual reality that in Christ, your flesh has been conquered. And what now resides in you is Galatians 2.20, Christ in you. So what does that tell us about circumcision and baptism? It tells us that neither save you. Circumcision as a removal of the flesh was always meant to point to the greater reality of the removal of our sinful flesh that Christ conquers. And, and all of those old covenant elements were meant to point to the gospel, point to Christ. That he would fulfill all the covenant requirements and make a new covenant that was better. And I think we'd all agree that being baptized as an, as an adult is better than being circumcised as an adult. Amen? All right. The Jews, the Jews would, would bear the, the physical reality of their circumcision, but the spiritual reality was for them to obey, a.k.a. not live in the flesh. That's the point, right? So in Christ, baptism takes its place, takes the place of circumcision. 
Now, for us, baptism is still a physical sign, but it points to a reality that has already taken place, that Christ has killed or conquered our sinful flesh, and we are now capable, being a new creation in Christ, to not live in the flesh, but live in the Spirit, and live in obedience, and live in holiness, and live in righteousness, because that's what He's given us. He's taken your slavery to flesh, said, you don't have to sin anymore. And he said, I'm going to shackle you to me. When you find this in the Bible all the time, Paul introduces himself in many of his letters as a, as a the Greek word is doulos. And some of your Bible translations translate it like bondservant or servant. Terrible translation. The word means slave. And I don't know why they translate it servant or bondservant because I... We don't use the word bondservant in English anymore. So the fact that they still put that in Bibles doesn't make sense to me, right? Why not call it what it is? Slave. You are a slave. Your entire life is slavery. You will always be in slavery. You are born into slavery and you will die in slavery. No human exists outside of slavery, period. And you will forever remain for eternity in slavery. You are born a slave to sin and you die a slave in sin unless you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And when you do, you become a slave to Christ. He is your master, you are his slave, and you are bound to righteousness. So he shackles you to righteousness. And that sounds oppressive. But if you're saved, then you understand that it's not oppressive. That it's glorious and wonderful and great. And that it is actually freedom. We call it slavery, but it's freedom. Freedom from sin. Freedom from being bound by something that hates us and that we hate. And now free to express the love and joy and faithfulness and goodness and righteousness and holiness and obedience of God. That Christ has done for us and in us and given to us. That is the kind of slavery I want. I want to be bound to Christ. And, and so that is what baptism reveals. That our physical baptism shows that spiritual reality. So the accumulation of all of this is that circumcision was meant to point to baptism in Christ, which is an expression of the gospel of Jesus. Meaning circumcision was always meant to point the Jews to the gospel. Circumcision was always meant to point the Jews to Jesus. So what does that have to do with the Colossians? Well, the Colossians were forgetting the gospel. And Paul was pointing them back to their baptism to remember the gospel. The false gospel being perpetuated in Colossae was a mixture of things. We talk about this in our life group. We call it syncretism. This idea of sinking together different religious beliefs into one. And what was invading the Colossian church was Gnosticism, Judaism, Hellenism, and some societal practices. So uh, if you don't know what Hellenism is, just kind of think of like Greek mythology. Let's just I'll make that like a brief summary of Hellenism. Just kind of like this old Greek religiosity of mythology that was kind of the idea of hellenism and then you've got judaism which is you know like old testament judaism and then you've got gnosticism which is all about knowledge and nothing physical is real or matters and and all that matters is this spiritual and jesus was physical so he's not god but if he is god then he's like a little bit lower than the 
angels and so on and so forth. And there's all these goofy gospels out there that aren't real or true. And then they've got all these just societal practices of sin that are perverted beyond description. And since there are children here, I'm not going to describe them to you. So you get the hint, right? A lot of things. And, and, and then these, these mixture of beliefs kind of blend together. And these people would come forward and start telling all these Christians. What they realize is we can't stop the gospel. That's the reality of these heretics. Is they're looking at the gospel and they're watching this thing spread like wildfire. And people are consumed. If you look at the Pentecost, when pre- Peter first preaches, 3,000 people get saved. And then later in that same chapter God says that he just or or Luke writes that God was adding to their numbers day by day boom but people are getting saved left and right the gospel exploded onto the scene and the church just grew so rapidly and the more it was persecuted the stronger it got and the and the heretics realized we can't stop this gospel so what do we do well we will mix them like you can, you can have your Jesus you can have your Jesus. You just have to be circumcised too. Because that's what Moses says. Oh, you can have your Jesus. You just have to believe in Zeus also because that's, that's what everybody believes. Well, you can, you can have your Jesus. You just have to practice these sexual moralities as well in the temple of Artemis and then you'll be saved. And so... There's all these blendings and mixtures of Gospels. Oh, you can have your Jesus, you just can't believe that he's fully God. Christians, the Gospel is so new. You've got to understand, like, we, all of you were born into a culture that has already, already knows about Jesus. Churches were already established all over America when you were born here. And if you weren't born in America and you're born in some other country, I promise you, there were churches there too. We're all born into societies with churches where the gospel is all over the world. There are places where the gospel isn't yet, I get that. But we're all born into a very different world than the first century church. They weren't born into this. The church is new. They're meeting in homes. Paul was going from town to town, establishing new communities, giving them, saying, hey, you've got to get elders. Well, Paul, what do we do about this? I'll write you a letter. Boom, there. That's how you operate. There's so many questions, so many things going on. They don't understand. We are like born into church. Most of us are like raised going to church. We understand what church is about. We've heard the gospel our whole life. We went to children's church and Sunday school and we got saved when we were 10 and, you know, whatever. Maybe some of you have a different story, but even if you got saved when you were 50, you heard about Jesus when you were a kid. I'm sure you did. You knew what church was. You heard about God. None of this is new. For them, this is brand new. So they're like, oh, okay, so the gospel is Christ. I, I believe it, I get it. And then all of a sudden these other angles start coming in and pff, they start getting confused with all these gospels. You look at the book of Galatians, they start falling for it heavy. You look at Colossians, they're starting to, starting to creep in. These heresies are starting to creep in. These syncretic gospels that are a mixture of different beliefs are starting to creep into the church and Paul's dealing with it. And how does he deal with it? He deals with it by giving them a reminder. And his reminder is to tell them, remember your baptism. Remember your physical baptism. It was a physical sign of your commitment to the gospel. It was their outward expression 
of the truth that resides within them, the truth of the true gospel, that they've died to their flesh and are now in Christ. That gospel is the only weapon we need against heresy and false teaching. And, and, and Paul's answer to the heresy is to remind them of their baptism, to take them back to their physical baptism as a reminder of the spiritual truth of the gospel. And that is why baptism is so important. God is spirit, but he made us flesh. And one of the reasons for making us flesh is so that we would have physical realities for remembrance. This makes perfect sense. You look at the Old Testament. When they crossed over the Jordan, what did God tell them to do? Make a monument right here. Physically put a pile of rocks and put it right here. Why? So that when your children see this mound, they would say, what's that? And you would, what? Remember how I crossed you over the Jordan and brought you into my promised land. Physical reality for remembrance. Why do we have communion? We eat physical food and we drink physical drink as a reminder of our spiritual consumption of Christ, as a reminder of the body of Jesus and the blood of Christ that was spilled for us. So these physical things help us remember. And that's why when Jesus instituted communion, he said, when you do this, do this, what? In remembrance of me. These physical signs are for our memory, for our, the reminders, so we don't forget the gospel. That's why we're commanded to do communion and we're commanded to be baptized when we're saved. It's for memory. It's for your reminding, as a reminder for you, and it's for your remembrance. Our physical nature allows us to recall things that are more important based on the physicality of them. If I tell you that I love you, you might forget that I said that one day. But if I walk up to you and I say, and I grab you by the, by the collar and I go, I love you. And then I embrace you and I hold you and I squeeze you and I go, oh, I love you so much. And then I pull away and I grab your cheeks and I kiss you on the forehead and I go, I love you so much. And then I push you out of love. You know, it's like, oh, I just love you so much. <laughs> You're going to go, that was weird. <laughs> but I'll never forget it, <laughs> right? Like that kind of physical, that, the physicality of that, you can't forget that kind of stuff. If someone gives you a bad look, like a mean mugs you, you know, kind of gives you like that, that dirty eye look, you might forget that one day, but if someone walks up to you and slaps you in the face, you're never going to forget that. Our, our physical nature, the physical reality of our bodies is, is meant to call things out as reminders. It's meant to, to be there for, for recall, and that is what baptism is meant to do. It's a physical thing, and its physical nature is a reminder of our spiritual involvement in the gospel. And that's why Paul's saying, don't forget your baptism. Not because baptism saved you, and not because circumcision. Remember, baptism is, is the new sign what, for what was circumcision. And just remember, it's not circumcision, it's not baptism that saves you. Just remember the baptism because the baptism was your physical expression of the spiritual reality of how the gospel has worked in you. You're saved. The whole point of you being saved is to be holy 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. That's the whole point of us being saved is so we would live holy and in our holiness, we would glorify God. What is glory? 
What's glory? We use that word as Christians all the time. Glorify God. Glory. That's oh, glorious. Glory, 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 glory. We sing about glory. We talk about glory. We preach about glory. What is it? Someone put glory in my hands. I want to take, I want to see it. I want to physically touch it. I want to know what it looks like. What is glory? It's a word that describes this idea or this concept that we can't visualize. And so the only visualization we get of glory in the Bible is a light that is so bright you can't look at it without dying. Because God is full of glory. So our only tangible reality of glory is to look at his glory and it blinds us to death. So, so, so what is it then? Glory is the manifestation of holiness. Glory equals holiness. When we talk about glory, it is the expression or the manifestation of perfection. God is perfectly holy, therefore he is full of glory. Which is why when we say things like glorify God, the only thing that glorifies God is obedience. Because obedience is holy. And the opposite of obedience is disobedience, which is not holy and therefore does not glorify God. Or does not magnify his glory. Whereas obedience is holiness. And that magnifies God's glory because it magnifies his holiness. So the whole point is that when we talk about glorifying God, we're talking about showing off God's holiness. That's why when Jesus says, do good works so that others would see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, let me translate that for you. Be holy, and in your holiness, they will see the holiness of God because he put that holiness in you. And when they see your holiness, they're actually seeing God's holiness because it's his. And when they see holiness, it's glorious. And they will see that holiness and they will glorify God. They will praise his perfection. So glory is holiness expressed. And that is the whole purpose of our existence is to glorify God. And the only way to glorify God is to be holy. So the whole purpose of your existence as a Christian is to obey God. Now, the Colossians weren't great at it. The Galatians weren't great at it. The Corinthians were terrible at it. The Thessalonians were pretty good at it, actually. But still not perfect. And neither are you. And neither am I. And that is why Paul reminds us of our baptism. To say, listen, you failed again. I get it. Your flesh, you still live in this flesh. It's hard. You failed again. But let me remind you of your baptism. Go back to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Go back to where it started. Go back to the gospel. Because the only way you're going to be able to get up out of the mud and the dirt and the grime of your sin that you keep falling back into is if the gospel lifts you out. So Paul doesn't walk over to people who are in sin or believing lies or heresies and say, hey, you should be better. He goes, no, no, no. Let me remind you of who you are. Do you remember being baptized when you went under the water and you died that death and you came up out of the water and resurrected from that death? That physical symbol that you'll never forget because who doesn't remember being half drowned? <laughs> right? You know how hard it is to resist as a pastor making drowning jokes at baptisms every time? I try so because it's so important. It's so spiritually significant. I'm like, don't make jokes, Mark. So, 
But, but really, how do you forget that? Some guy dunked me underwater and brought me up out of water and there were people there to witness it and I'm here to express this awesome reality that I trust in Jesus for my salvation. And that's the whole power of obedience. The power of your obedience is not in you just obeying. The power of your obedience is the gospel. Remembering the gospel and remembering who you are in Christ. That you were in the flesh and Christ has conquered the flesh in his flesh, putting to death your flesh and burying your flesh and leaving it dead and rising from the grave with your flesh still buried and him new and resurrected and then shares that power of resurrection with us and in us. And then we get to Romans 6, 5 through 6 and Paul says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The power of your obedience is not just, hey, suck it up, do it right, be better. That doesn't, that's shame and guilt producing. And shame and guilt never produce inspiration for obedience. You know what produces inspiration for obedience? Jesus Christ. That's what inspires me to obey. I love that man. I want to be like that man. I want to preach like that man. I want to live like that man. I want to worship God like that man. I want to love you like Christ loves you. I want to teach the Bible the way that he taught the Bible. I want to love the Word of God the way Jesus loved the Word of God. I want to understand God the way Jesus understood God. I want to be filled with the Spirit the way that Christ was filled with the Spirit. And I want to preach with the Spirit the way Christ did. And when I get empty and tired and exhausted, I want to do what Jesus did. And I want to say, I want to quit my job for 40 days and go sit with the Father in the middle of the wilderness and not eat anything because he is my life and he is my bread and he is my drink. I need nothing in this body but my God. That's what I want to be. Don't you want to be like that? Wouldn't that be awesome? But are we? <laughs> Not even close. And it's frustrating, isn't it? Because you want that and you want to live like that and you know that's your motivation. I think most people in here would be like, yeah, 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 I want to do that. Yeah, yeah, Pastor Mark, I'm so excited. I want to go live that way today. And then life hits you like a brick wall, like you ran into a brick wall with a truck, just stops you in the middle of your day and sin is just everywhere. It's in you and around you and all over and it just wrecks that desire. So how do we get that desire back? Remember your baptism. And that idea of remember your baptism that idea of remembering your baptism is not the baptism is important. The point is remember what the baptism symbolizes. You are a new creation in Christ. You are not the old you. You are now Jesus. Not literally, but spiritually. You are Christ. Your identity is Christ. And I do mean that literally. Actually, just not physically, and we're not gods. We are in Christ. He is our identity. He is our righteousness. You can obey. You can obey. Don't tell me you can't. Because you can. I know you can. I've seen you do it. I know you can do it again. I've seen you sin, and then I've seen you overcome that sin with holiness. I know you can do it. You know why I know you can do it? Is it because you're good people? 
Oh, man, I just have the best church in America. That's what it is. I got the best group of believers in the entire world. I just happen to be that one pastor who has that church full of people who can do it. All the other churches are full of sinners. They love Jesus, but they can't do it. Not like we can. Is that, is that what's going on here? You guys know that's not true, right? Why can you do it? Because Christ did it. And he's in you. That's it. He's all you need. If you're sinning, here's your problem. You don't have enough Jesus. That's it. You're sinning. The problem is not enough Christ. Do you want to stop sinning? More Christ. You guys, this is like first grade math. You minus Jesus equals sin. You plus Jesus equals holiness. That's simple. It's that simple. Now, okay, life's not simple though, right? Complex, hard, difficult, arduous, painful, suffering. You know, there's all kinds of... It's, it's, it's an undulated reality, living this life. It's just up these hills and turns and curves and it's hard. I get that. God is after our hearts, and he just wants your hearts to desire him. So, ultimately, what this has to do with us is, the real application here is, the whole point that Paul's getting to with the Colossians is that he wants them to obey, but not for the sake of obedience, because that's just legalism. Just, not just to follow the rules, that's, that's just strictness. What he's trying to get to, the heart of his point, is that he wants to get to a place where you are obedient so that God is glorified and you are satisfied in him. That's the heart of the matter. That your obedience is about something greater. It's about God's glory and it's about you exalting Christ in your human flesh and exalting Christ and expressing that gospel that saved you to the world that needs it and to your spouse and to your children and to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and to everybody. The whole point is that we would express, live in, and desire and love Jesus. The whole point is to exalt Jesus, that your life would exalt Jesus and that God would be glorified in the exaltation of Jesus. If anything you get out of this sermon, I pray that it's Jesus. That's the whole purpose of the gospel is to lift up Jesus. And what is Jesus' primary purpose in his entire life and ministry? To do the will of the Father, to glorify the Father. We exalt Christ to bring glory to God the Father. So how do we do that? If our whole point here is for us to get to a place where we are always reminded of the gospel and we have baptism as a physical reminder, what's our real application? The application is you have to know the gospel. You have to know. If you think you know the gospel, let me tell you, you don't. You know why? Because the gospel is the entire word of God. We often think call the gospel like, Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave and believe and you'll be saved. That's the gospel. That's, that's the pinnacle of the gospel. That's not the wholeness of the gospel. The whole gospel is Genesis through Revelation. God revealing himself. And the whole point of that revelation is you get God. That's the gospel. That's the good news. You get God. And he shows you the whole story from beginning to end. And the pinnacle of that story is Christ and his death and resurrection. Which is why Paul says in Galatians 6.14, 
I boast in nothing but Christ and him crucified. So our objective in life then is to know the gospel. And knowing the gospel means knowing the entire word of God. Okay, got it? Everybody got it? That's it. Your objective in life is to know the gospel, and the gospel is the entire word of God, so let's get started. Your objective for the rest of your life is to know the entire word of God. Go. Think that's going to be hard? The entire word of God? Do you think you're going to get to the end of exhausting God's word? No, there's no way. You're never going to understand the entirety of God's word. It's inexhaustible. If you had a thousand lifetimes to do it, you would never finish. And that's done on purpose. What God is after is your desire for his word. Jeremiah 15, 16. I saw your words. I I found your words. I ate them and mm, they were good. And they were the delight of my soul. Or actually says the delight of my heart. That's what he's after. And so, and so we, it sounds daunting, right? This idea of like, we have to know everything. We have to know the whole word of God. We have to know the Bible. That's a daunting reality. And it's, it, it should sound daunting because it is. Spending more time in God's word is going to require sacrifice on your part. It's hard work. It's changing habits. It's adjusting and creating new routines. It should shake up your life because Jesus shook up everyone's life. And if that sounds discouraging because you have a hard time making time for God's word, then I want to give you this reminder that Paul gave the Colossians. Remember your baptism. Remember that you have died to the flesh and you've been risen in Christ. It is no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. And now with Christ in you, you have the spirit of God in you to draw your heart and attention to the Bible so you can know it. You don't have to figure this out on your own. And you're not alone. You have Christ in you to draw you into the Word. So if you're struggling to make time for the Word, I could tell you it's a matter of desire and it's a matter of priorities and it's a matter of sacrifice. You don't desire enough, you don't prioritize well, and you're not willing to sacrifice. And you don't want to make new habits. That's the problem. I could say that, but instead what I'm going to say is, but you have the power in Christ to overcome those hurdles. So, it's going to require sacrifice. It's not going to be easy. If you're waiting for it to be easy, it's never going to happen, and maybe that's why it isn't happening. So how do I make time for God's Word? I have answers. I have practical, tangible, daily answers for you. All right. Apart from sacrificially and intentionally making time for God's Word, number one, pray about it. That is a sacrifice you can make. It takes 30 seconds to pray. Say, Dear Lord Jesus, I don't desire you enough. Make me want you more. You don't think he wants to answer that prayer? He will. Okay. Now, take that prayer to your spiritual leader, husband, pastor, elders, a trusted, mature believer that you know, and and, and work with that person to figure out the logistics and the scheduling of your life and to hold you accountable to changing so you more time in the Word so you know the gospel better so you can live more obediently and glorify God and you will be a happier Christian, I promise, because the Bible promises. So apart from that sacrificial, intentional time for prayer to be in God's Word, let me give you some tangible, actual things you can do. Friday morning, 6 a.m., right here in this building. If you're a man, you should be here, period. No excuses. We have men's Bible study. If, you're, if your job, if your shift at work starts at 6 a.m., fine. So be it. I can't stop that. 
But if you don't start work till 8 or 7.30, you can be here. So be here. Women, Saturday sisters, first and third Saturday of every month, 9.30, right here in the church. Also, my wife and I are talking about starting a Wednesday night women's Bible study here during, either during the summer or starting the summer and going throughout the year. I don't know yet. We don't know the details. It's going to happen because we need more time in the Word. The women need more time in the Word, which means husbands, spend more time in the Word with your wives. Okay, that, all right, men's Bible study here, six. A.M., Friday mornings, women's Saturday Sisters Bible study, first and third Saturday, 9.30 a.m., right here at the church. Wednesday night, women's Bible study also. Life groups, we have life groups. If you're not in a life group, be at a life group. We spend time in the Word. Christian and I teach the life groups. We're in the Word. There's fellowship, food, fun, laughs. It's awesome. It's a great time. You'll love it, but we're also in the Word. Okay, if you can't make Friday morning, men, new life. New Life Church, down in Dresser, 6.30 Tuesday morning. Nope. Yep. yep. <laughs> I literally asked him before and still got it wrong. 6.30 Tuesday morning. 6 a.m. Wednesday morning. 6.30 Thursday morning. Be there. You can't make our Friday morning? Go to New Life. They're in the Bible too. Do that. In addition to that, we meet here every Sunday at 10 a.m. <laughs> Which you know because you're here, right? So, so be here, too. We have, no, we have plenty of opportunities to be in the Word, okay? So, so like, I, I want to tell you, like, no more excuses, which I did kind of just say, but I want to be encouraging to you. So, so all of this will require sacrifice from you, which is your part in Jesus' sacrifice for you. And just like anything in life that is worth doing, you simply have to want it and literally just make it happen. And you can only make it happen if you have Christ in you. And that's your motivation. Jesus can do this and he's in me. Stop trusting in your own self to do it and put your faith and trust in Christ who will do it for you. He will motivate you. The problem is not that you're not, making your, you're not motivated enough. The problem is you're not focused on Christ enough. Let him motivate you. And it's going to cost you something because it cost Jesus his life. Which he raised from the dead so that you can do this. I promised you, didn't I? That I would end this sermon by telling you that you can do this. Christ died so that you, in him, can do this. Let's pray. Father, we trust you, we love you, we thank you. There's nothing we can do without you. There's nothing we can do for you without you. We need you. We need your spirit to cause us to desire you when we don't. And, and so draw us back to that baptism, Father. Draw us back to that physical reminder of what you have done for us, that we were buried in, in, in our flesh was killed in our burial and we came up out of the water, came up out of our death and out of your death, renewed and made new in Christ. Remind us of that physical reality so we would be spiritually motivated to live our life for you, so we'd be satisfied in seeing you glorified. We need more time in the word, God. We need more of you. We need more of you. We need more of you. Encourage us and motivate us toward that end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.